Exploremore presents a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a devil or two to boot by Alec and Jan Foreman. like to say thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have any questions, do please write to alecjan at gmail.com and do write podcast in the subject line. Thank you. Chapter 3. Bedouin Wedding. Sultanate of Oman. Over breakfast the next morning, Alec mentioned the British Antarctic Survey were leasing one of the twin otters out for the summer. Taylor Woodrow Towel, a construction company, was hiring the plane to support their work in the Middle East. They're looking for a crew to ferry the plane from Canada to the Sultanate of Oman and stay there for five months. It's accompanied, so Giles is going as the pilot and taking his girlfriend Vonnie along. They asked if I would like to go as the engineer. Really? So I could come too? Well, if we went, it would delay our journey. Yes, but it's a great opportunity. We should go. Still holding on to our dream to take a journey by vehicle, just the two of us, to far and distant lands, the dream we had planned and saved for since we met in 1972 would have to be postponed. But it was too good a job offer to turn down and the location would be fascinating to visit. Alec made contact with the British Antarctic Survey office in England that very morning and within a month we found ourselves dwelling in the fancy new Rui Hotel in Muscat, the capital city of Oman. Alec drove out to the airport each day to keep the plane in tip-top condition. I landed myself a job with the same company, working in the medical clinic, caring for Omani, Indian and Pakistani labourers. They were building houses, hotels and the Sultan Qaboos bin Said's new palace in the rapidly developing city. Being a Muslim country, Friday was the weekly day of work when we regularly took a company car out to explore the interior of Oman. Friday the 13th of August was just such a day when we left the city and journeyed out into the hot, dry countryside. We drove through an extensive valley where the road followed alongside the winding wadi, a dry riverbed susceptible to flash flooding during the seasonal rains. Villages were built here and there, shaded within their own oasis of palm trees. The road climbed out of the valley, up over a mountain pass, rolling up and down, curving sharply to the right and then to the left, cutting through the commanding rugged landscape. We noticed tiny settlements tucked alongside the majestic mountains. Men were riding their fully laden donkeys, trotting along centuries-old narrow tracks. We drove from the mountain pass into another rolling valley with a continual change of vegetation. By another wadi, dark green trees and shrubs grew, contrasting with the grey gravel terrain. In other areas we saw spiky coarse grass, which provided dry fodder for roaming camels. The mountains hauntingly overshadowed the scene. At the next village we stopped for petrol, 
which was pumped from a 45-gallon drum into metal gallon jugs and then poured into our car's petrol tank. The toxic fumes of the fuel hung in the heat of the breezeless day. The attendant wiped his hands on an oily rag before he took the payment and stuffed the real notes into the inner breast pocket of his grubby dish-dash robe. Looking down the street, I saw a man leading his camel to drink water drawn from a well. A new gaudy metal sign displayed nearby tempted the locals to try the latest soda drink on sale. Back on the tarmac road, our journey continued for some distance along the valley. Round lookout turrets were strategically positioned high in the formidable mountains. We drove on and on until the tarmac road petered out to a rutted earth track. The mountains and the valleys were left far behind and before us was a vast desert plateau sparsely vegetated with hardy shrubs. Far across towards the horizon lay the golden dunes of the shimmering silky Wahiba sands. Journeying on towards the village of Algarbi, we discovered a special event was taking place. Many men, women and children, all dressed in their best clothes, walked along together. Six of the men rhythmically danced in a line to the beat of a drum, leading the people towards the festivities. We parked the car close to other trucks and Land Rovers. Immediately a crowd of children swarmed around us, brown faces and hands pressed against the windows as they peered in to see the white strangers. Carefully we extracted ourselves from the car and stood and stared at the children as they stood and stared at us. Young boys dressed like miniature men wearing long dish-dash tunics of many colours. Cashmere cloth in vivid pink or orange and embellished with embroidery was wound in turbans around their heads. They each had a small curved kunja knife encased in a metal sheath that hung on their richly decorated belts. One lad had a bandolier filled with rifle cartridges around his waist. Each boy carried a simple stick as they mimicked their fathers with their sturdy goat sticks. The pretty young girls wore colourful dresses over baggy cotton trousers and were adorned with heavy silver jewellery, necklaces, anklets, bracelets and earrings. Two girls had eight large silver rings pierced through the curve of each ear. A group of men walked over to our car. One could speak a little English and he kindly invited us to join in the wedding festivities. A central arena was bordered on three sides by palm fronds shelters. The men from the bride's family sat under one and the men of the groom's family sat beneath the opposite shelter. The women of the two families were under the adjoining structure. We sat with the men as inquisitive, unreserved lads crowded around, pestering us to repeatedly shake hands until a man reprimanded them. They retreated but remained close enough to stare at us intently. Coffee and dates were served to the men and they ensured we had plenty too. The people from the Wahiba, Bedouins and the Algarbi villagers welcomed our presence. Alec inquired where the bride and groom were. With a glint in his eye and laughter in his voice, one of the men said, Oh, they're hiding. In the centre of the arena, a master of ceremonies guided the two groups of male dancers 
which represented each family into their movements. Men beat drums and chanted as the eyes of the audience watched the simple, repetitive steps of the performers as they moved around the arena. They passed under the shade of the shelters amongst the guests. An unearthly trance held everyone in its grip. The atmosphere was high and bewitching as everyone became intoxicated with the festivities. Sprightly lads, handsome, swarthy young men and wizened old hunters all participated enthusiastically with the rhythmical dancing. Their chanting voices rang through the air as they complimented each other's family on their good qualities and wished good fortune for the bride and groom. Then, in the centre of the arena, the entertainers leapt into the air and threw their sticks and caught them. With gung-ho, they raised their rifles and conjures. There were mock sword fights, using heavy long steel swords and wooden shields held by each swordsman. Every man at the wedding carried a weapon. A well-armed force could be mustered at a moment's notice from that band of warriors. We were invited to follow a young man to a nearby palm-front hut where we joined in the wedding feast. I was the only woman present amongst the Bedouin as we sat down together on the floor. Shafts of light fell on the bearded men, old in their looks, but with eyes of youthful exuberance that expressed good humour as they exchanged tribal tales in their mother tongue. They were masters of the desert, and the hard life and extremes of temperature had sculpted their rugged faces. A communal tray of piping hot rice and goat meat was placed down on the grass matting and the men gestured for us to eat. The soft, tender skin of my hand was unaccustomed to scooping up such hot food. The feast had been prepared outside the hut in giant iron cauldrons over wood fires. Stirred with a large shovel, it was inevitable that sand blew in, giving the meal a strange gritty texture. Sweet halua, and coffee were served after the meal before we left to make room for other guests and return to the arena. The dancing was in full swing and impish boys were throwing perfume over everyone, intoxicating the air with an exotic fragrance. Leaving Alex sitting in the shade with the men, I crossed over to the women's shelter to greet them and their children. Several stood to welcome me. The Bedouin women's eyes communicated warmly through the slits of their full facial black cloth masks. They were totally dressed in black, unlike the unmasked village women who were radiant in their colourful cotton robes. Each lady displayed the wealth of her family by her heavy adornment of gold and silver jewellery. Time was drawing on and we had to leave the celebration to make the return journey to Muscat before dusk. Back at the hotel, we took a refreshing shower and dressed smartly for dinner. As we sat in the modern hotel restaurant, enjoying our evening meal of smoked salmon with lemon zest, slices of tomatoes decorated with fresh mint leaves and boiled buttered potatoes, we pondered over the wedding. It had been another remarkable experience, rubbing shoulders with the people of the Sultanate of Oman. Alec and I first met in Germany, whilst both serving in the British Army. He had previously been posted to Hong Kong and travelled from there to Singapore, Bali and out to Australia. From Germany, Alec served a few months in Northern Ireland before being seconded to the British Antarctic Survey team.
my nursing and midwifery career took me from Germany to Canada and back to England. Our adventures in Oman added fuel to our wanderlust and the generous salaries doubled our savings of the previous four years. We returned to England in the autumn ready to activate our long-planned dream, to travel in our own vehicle, at our own pace and explore many countries and cultures. It would take at least a year but could be longer if we found work along the way. Our planned route was to drive through Europe, ferry across to Africa overland to Kenya, ship to India and drive back to England. When Alec and I first dated, he said to me, When I reach my sixties, I don't want to look back and regret not having done something with my life. I want to travel and see the world. How fortunate was I to have met a man who is hungry for adventure, eager to make things happen and long to share that all with me. On the 20th of September 1976, we purchased a 1974 Series 3 long wheelbase blue and cream Land Rover from Alex's Uncle Jeff. Because the vehicle had begun its working life on the farm, hauling pigs and potatoes, it took us three days to flush out the pong. Over several months, whilst we lodged with Alex's parents in Newton Regis, Warwickshire, Alex converted the Land Rover to become our very first home. To guard against extremes of weather on our journey, Alec first insulated the interior aluminium walls, doors and floor. An elevating roof was constructed and fitted, which allowed us to stand upright in the back, between the kitchen cupboards on the left and the wooden bench-cum-bed on the right. You could sit on the bench and open the drop-down hinged horizontal cupboard door as a nifty mini dining table. As you climbed into the Land Rover through the back doorway, on the left there was a small wooden box seat discreetly hiding the chemical toilet. Blinds were installed fore and aft of the living quarters for privacy at night, plus small fluorescent strip lighting. A charcoal filter was plumbed into the worktop to have safe drinking water pumped from the water storage tank down in the bilges. My contribution in transforming the Land Rover into a comfy mobile home was to sew soft brown fabric covers for the foam bench cushions. I also made a long zipped tube of fabric to store our bedding. It hung along the right side of the interior, providing a headdress for the bench seat. The fabric of the bedding bag was a jazzy pattern of yellow, brown and white that added a cheerful splash of colour to the decor. A second auxiliary petrol tank was fitted under the driver's seat. The roof rack that extended out over the bonnet of the vehicle carried the large wooden storage box, custom made by my dad in Brentwood, Essex. Two frames carrying three empty petrol jerry cans in each were slotted between either side of the box and the upright edge of the roof rack. A further six jerry cans stood side by side behind the wooden box. Metal sand ladders were also bolted along the outer sides of the rack. Alec mounted a capstan winch on the front bumper and we had two spare wheels, one on the bonnet and the other on the back door, which made it very heavy to open and close. Padlocks secured everything in place to deter pilfering and bolts were fitted on the inside of each door to keep intruders out as we slept. On the administration side, I made several trips in and out of London to apply for visas, 
which involved going from one embassy to the next, delivering and collecting our passports. A carnet de passage for the Land Rover and international driving licences were ordered from the Automobile Association. Foreign currencies bought and vaccinations received. We spent a lot of time and money purchasing supplies, such as vehicle spare parts, mats, a compass, dried food, medications, a mosquito net, toilet rolls and kitchen equipment, including two primer stoves, one that burned paraffin and one petrol. I made two blue leather pouches with cords to go around our necks. These were used to carry our passports and some cash. Travellers' checks and foreign hard cash were hidden behind wooden panels inside the Land Rover to spread our funds out in several secure places. Referring to the advice from experts on overland travel, such as trail finders, we endeavoured to be as well prepared as we could be. At the beginning of February 1977, all our lists were checked off. The ferry was booked, the Land Rover was ready and there was nothing more to do. The time had come to realise our dream. You've been listening to a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a Devil or Two to Boot by Alec and Jan Foreman, presented by Explore More. Explore More is an adventure lifestyle brand founded on the 1977 travel stories of Alec and Jan Foreman with a passion to inspire people to explore more of the world, engage with others and embrace global cultures to ensure a greater understanding for each other and enable positive progression. Discover great products and more on exploremore.com. That's E-X-P-L-M-O-R-E dot com. (laughs) 